Hey everyone, Pat Sweet here. If you're like most of the folks who listen to the show, you're an engineering leader who is busy. And probably not just a little busy, but extremely busy. Like working overtime on a regular basis, hardly getting enough sleep, not getting the exercise you want. Work is just nuts. So if this describes you, you're in very good company. And it's for that reason that I've put together a free guide, which I've what I think is very cleverly called Finding the Sixth Day, an engineer's quick guide to making more time now. And it answers that call. It provides five practical, actionable steps that you can take very quickly to create that sixth day that you wish you actually had the run of a work week. And here's the best part. You don't actually have to work the weekend to find that sixth day. That time is sitting there available for you to do important work, to do good work. And with this guide, my hope is that I can help you find that quickly. So again, that's Finding the Sixth Day, an engineer's quick guide to making more time now. It's absolutely free, and you can download it today at engineeringandleadership.com slash sixth day. That's engineeringandleadership.com slash six, T-H, day. This is the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet, Episode 39. Welcome to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast, the show dedicated to helping engineers thrive. Today, I speak with speaker, teacher, and author Peter Docker about his new book, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Thanks for being here again with me today. I'm very excited about today's interview, and I I really do think that this will quickly become one of the most popular episodes of the podcast. This is is really, really good stuff with Peter Docker. Uh, But before we get into that, a few things that I wanted to mention. I have a very special opportunity to share with you related to today's show. So, So do stay tuned to the end of the podcast for that. Uh, You're not going to want to miss this really, really cool contest we're going to run. Next, I wanted to share that uh, I'm going to be starting a monthly webinar series. And this is going to be a way to kind of connect with the community on a monthly basis and cover some sort of topic uh, related to the show, be it productivity, leadership, management, all, all within the context of engineering. Uh, and it'll be a good way to to go a little bit deeper with this stuff, and and maybe more importantly, to interact with uh, the folks who are in the community and and hear firsthand the kind of challenges you have, and really work through things in a in a concrete way. So the very first of these monthly webinars is going to be called Inbox Detox, a three step process to help get your inbox under control. That's going to take place on October twenty sixth. And you can sign up at engineeringandleadership.com slash inbox detox webinar. And that's totally free. So do come and and join us. I I know if you're listening to this show, you're someone who gets email (laughs) because you're an engineer and you have a connection to the internet. So there's no getting around it. And if you get email, that means you probably get too much email. So do come out inbox detox October 26th, totally free. Just go to engineeringandleadership.com slash inbox detox webinar. That's it for now. Let's get to today's main content. (music) 
One of the struggles many engineering leaders have is knowing how and when to let go and allow their teams to move forward with their daily work. It can be incredibly difficult to know how to transition from working in the team and really being a member doing the work to working on the team itself. This leads to problems with micromanagement, impaired team performance, and a dearth of leadership and direction. Luckily, Peter Docker addresses this exact problem in his new book, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. In today's episode, I speak with Peter about his new book, The Importance of Letting Go, and what it takes to be a fantastic engineering leader. Peter is a keynote speaker and presents all over the world, offering workshops and bespoke leadership programs. His career has included time as a professional pilot, leading an aviation training and standards organization, teaching postgraduates at an international college, and running a multi-billion pound procurement project. A former Royal Air Force senior officer, he has been a force commander during combat flying operations and has seen service across the world. He is also a seasoned crisis manager, a former international negotiator for the UK government, and an executive coach. Here is my interview with Peter Docker. Mr. Peter Docker, welcome to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. My pleasure to be here, Pat. Thanks for having me on. We were talking a little bit just uh, just before hitting record, and I, I just finished uh, reading your book um, about about jump seat leadership, and mm. it was a, it was a great read, um, and I, I'm really excited to to discuss this with you today. But before we we go anywhere with that, why don't you help us understand, help people understand what you mean uh, when you say jump seat leadership? What is that, and and what differentiates it from from other uh, other models of leadership. So a little bit to unpack there. I, I, I'll just focus first of all on the term. Um, part of my background, I, I used to be a pilot and I used to be involved in training other pilots. And the the term leading from the jump seat stems from uh, a story that's covered in the book where I just signed up a, a guy to become a captain. He just finished all of his training and um, we were about to get airborne out of San Francisco, and he had his own crew with him, but he'd asked me to come up onto the flight deck for departure uh, for the takeoff because it was very busy and he wanted an extra pair of eyes. And I sat on what's called the jump seat. And the jump seat is the seat on many large passenger jets that is immediately behind the two pilot seats. So you have the captain, the co-pilot, or first officer, and then there's this seat which is often spare but can be used for other crew members. And that's where I was sat And we'd got airborne and we're only a few hundred feet from the ground when we had an emergency. And what I chose to do in those next couple of seconds would dictate the outcome, whether we would survive um, us on the flight deck and also the other 140 people on board. And, you know, in that moment, I needed to become a follower, not a leader. I needed uh, this new captain, his name is Callum. Uh, to sense that I had his back. And so this coined the phrase lean from the jump seat because whatever we do in life, at some stage, Pat, we're all going to take a step back. You know, we're going to retire from being the CEO, move on from our team, or commonly, if we're a parent, you know, our kids grow up and they leave home and start to lead their own lives. You know, so jump seat leadership is all about lifting others up so they can lead and carry forward those things that are really important to us. And that's the focus of jump seat leadership. It's not about 
increasing or maintaining our own power. It's about empowering others. One of the one of the things that really stood out to me that that story among among others within the book is, is this recurring theme related to letting go of yeah. recognizing a moment where the the leader could intervene could do something act and and the the right thing to do in fact was to sit back and allow the person that that you've you've built up over time and empowered mm-hmm. to do what you know they can do and what stood out to me is is how difficult that mm-hmm. is in, in in my own experience and in my experience with other leaders how difficult it is to um to see uh, frankly an emergency uh now your emergencies where you're 30,000 feet in the air tend to yeah. be quite a bit more emergent than my own emergencies where emails aren't getting through <laughs> right <laughs> um, but but all the same is that inclination to step in and be the hero and and act is is so strong and i wonder if you could comment on why why do you think that is why is it so hard mm. for leaders to trust in the process, trust in the people that they've developed and, and, and sit back. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, it is human, you know, it really is uh, to want to step in. Uh, we, most people like to have some control over their own destiny or what, what they're doing. And that's okay. You know, we're not always going to get it right, but it's the intention, the trend, which is important. And, The example of an aircraft emergency is helpful because it shows what can be done, even when the ultimate is on the line, our own life. But it applies in business and and life elsewhere, too. And the thing that makes us want to step in is fear. Fear naturally occurs in us when our life, our livelihood, our status or reputation is threatened. Now, our life being threatened, us to react with fear is is perfectly understandable. You know, we jump out of the way of the oncoming car or um, dangerous animal or whatever it happens to be. It gets a problem, though, when it's our livelihood, status or reputation, and particularly those last two, status or reputation, are on the line because fear kicks in. And fear there looks like um, <laughs> it's about me. Uh it's my ego. You know, ego is Greek for, for I. It's about how we close down and just focus on ourselves, which, you know, is the fear reaction when our life is in danger too. You know, we've got to survive. But when we're in the workplace and it's our status or reputation or livelihood, we have that same reaction and the ego kicks in or we start to see the world as a place of scarcity and lack of opportunity, you know, Um and that's where this, this natural instinct of ego kicks in, and that's why it's so difficult to, to let go. The reason I was able to let go in the example I gave at the start of this call, uh, the emergency on the aeroplane, is because of a number of things, not least the training that uh, we'd given this, this new guy, Callum, um, but also the relationship we have. Um, and between ourselves. And thirdly, um, where I was sourcing myself from, which wasn't fear, it was from something else. It's called love. 
And there's something we can dive into if you like. Yeah, I, that's I, I was I was waiting for that moment <laughs> for that for that <laughs> word to come up because uh, because it's a um, it's a it's a theme throughout the book, um, yeah. and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty bold claim um, in that it, it's not the kind of thing that comes up an awful lot in leadership books is the importance of mm-hmm. of love for leadership and. Uh, the way you you position it initially in the in the book is is that love is an antidote to fear. It's the it's the magic elixir that addresses fear. Yeah. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, Pat, everything that's important to us in life, really important to us, everything is driven by the fear or love. And what connects them actually is courage. Um, courage can't exist without the catalyst of fear, but it can only be sustained by love. I think we we trip ourselves up a little bit because of the in- inadequacy of this word love in so many ways, because we, we use it in so many different situations. But what I'm focused on here is love in the sense of a willingness to put others first, to have humble confidence replace ego. You know, humble confidence is where um, we're humble enough to, to listen to others, which is a great enabler because it, it stops us being the uh, limitation on what we achieve when we can learn from others, uh, and a willingness to make a decision when we need to make a decision. Love is also about compassion, um, humility. It's about a willingness to see the world as a place of opportunity and possibility rather than scarcity. You know, So we always, always have a choice how we Uh, respond to a situation. You know, even the likes of Nelson Mandela, when he had nothing uh, in prison for all those years, he could have chosen fear, but no, he chose love for something uh, instead. Malala Yousafzai, who was shot um, in Pakistan um, in, in her teenage years, you know, she would have could have easily chosen fear, but instead she chose love for something, for something she believed in. And this is why love is so such a powerful force uh, when we, we source ourselves from it. it. It helps us to overcome challenges and obstacles that fear just isn't going to be able to sustain us for that long. When you, when you invoke... Uh, stories like uh, like Malala's or or, or Nelson Mandela's. Um, I think it's it's brilliant in that you you see it's easy to see in those extreme mm. cases. It paints a very clear picture of how something like love and approaching your work in your life with uh, uh, the decision to love it, it it makes sense. Yeah, one of the things that. Um, I wrestled with a little bit is taking those examples and and zooming down to uh, my morning scrum with my team, right? Mm. Uh, a bunch of hard nosed, skeptical, unfeeling engineers. <laughs> and I'm sorry to my team if they're listening, uh, <laughs> but I, I imagine it's it's difficult uh, in some ways to to pitch this to a corporate audience or a technical audience. How do you how do you help people? Um, operationalize this idea mm. how do you take that to the office in the morning what what kind of things do you do you recommend or how might you how might you guide someone if they're trying to address fear with love well i think um it, it always starts all these things start with the person in the mirror you know um 
<laughs> when we're clear on what we stand for ourselves, what's really important to us, um, then that can those things can act as a, a handrail at times when we don't know the answer, when uh, we feel out of our comfort zone. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I've applied these sorts of ideas, although I, I wouldn't have had the, this language at the time, but uh, when I was leading people in, in combat, flying aircraft, totally unarmed, um, we were air refueling aeroplanes, and this was in the 2003 Gulf-Iraq um, War. And, uh, you know, what we did there... We, we chose, I certainly chose, I know all my people chose, uh, love for something rather than fear of something. Uh, so in the most extreme circumstances, and this was very technical as well, you know, we're flying technical airplanes, um, then it, it was, in this case, a love for our fellow um, soldiers who were on the ground who we'd never met but were relying on the air support that we enabled them to get for their lives. And it was that sense of duty and service to others that drove us forward. Um, if you want a real technical thing, and this is, I always mention this because it's accessible for everybody to see jump seat leadership in action. The brilliant 1995 film Apollo 13, there you have a bunch of the most technical engineers you could imagine at the time faced with an unbelievably challenging problem of Apollo 13, which many listeners will recall had an explosion in space en route to the moon. Now, this was back in the 70s, but it's still just as relevant today. What drove those engineers on to find the solution was their absolute dedication to bringing those three astronauts home safe. They were in service of those astronauts and they would work every hour they possibly could, all aligned around the same commitment to bring these people home, to figure out what at the first instance seemed an impossible challenge. And they did figure it out and they did come home safe. And it was arguably then and still now NASA's finest hour. Absolutely. And I, I think I think many of us, particularly from a, a technical standpoint, look at a situation like that and think, you know, the the stakes are as high as they get. The time, yeah. the time limit is <laughs> there is no delay to that project. Yeah. Right. The the you you need to act. And yeah, you you paint a really, really interesting picture of how the situation uh galvanized the team. There was mm. a very clear sense of the mission and what yeah. you were there to do. And what was interesting there was how the mission had to pivot. All of a sudden, this wasn't about getting people landed on the moon and back. Exactly. This is about getting getting some people home safe. Yeah, it, it, it was. It, it shifted. They shifted the context. You know, there, there are only two things in this world: there is content and there is context. Um, content is like all the puzzle pieces on the table of a jigsaw puzzle. Um, but without the picture on the box, the context, they don't have meaning. And as leaders, particularly actually people who are in a, a technical field, such as engineering, typically you've progressed in your field because you've been good at knowing the answer. Yeah. Um, but then you get to the stage where you're looking after the people who have got their hands on the tools or, or working the problems. And your job is to paint that picture on the puzzle box. 
and make it as clear as possible so as others who are marshalling the, the, the puzzle pieces or they themselves are the puzzle pieces can figure out how to come together. Now, what happened with Apollo 13 was the picture on the box started off as being, let's get three astronauts to the moon with two of them down on, onto the moon surface, lunar surface, and bring them back again. That was the picture on the box. But after the explosion, they needed to change the picture on the box. And years ago, I had a, a, a challenging um, jigsaw puzzle whereby if you turn the puzzle pieces over, there was a different picture on the other side. They still came together but they formed a different picture. They took on different meaning. And this is exactly what happened with Apollo 13. So if we haven't got our team aligned and we don't feel they're all working with us to, towards whatever challenge it is we're facing, maybe it's a time to pause and say, well, do I need to illuminate the picture on that jigsaw puzzle box? Do I need to create it or do I need to shift it? Because that is the key to creating a space where people can come together using their knowledge, their ability to learn their way through to the solution that you're seeking or the outcome you're hoping for. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that I thought was really interesting um, was that this, this idea of the, the, the picture on the puzzle box. I thought that was a great, mm. a great way to imagine the role of the leader. And it's easy to think that everyone everyone's working with the same mental model. Everyone has this idea of this picture on the box when, in fact, it's very easy for people to have their their own views, their own versions. Um, so once you, once you paint that picture, what are the other things that you have to do as a leader is, is provide hope. And this is another one of the big themes in the book is, is to, to really convey that sense that we can do this. And and if you if you zoom back to the Apollo 13 example, that that must have been a core component of that of that mission mm. shifting the picture and then saying, "Listen up folks, this can be done." Yeah. And and you refer back to that line from the movie, uh, "Failure is not an option." <laughs> and and the the team clearly bought in. Mm. Which which is remarkable because because yeah. the stakes were so high, and and the context shifted so much that it would be very rational, frankly, mm. to 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 lose hope. Yeah. How do you in in a in a practical sense convey hope to a team of people? What what kinds of things can you do when you recognize that that maybe the the team that you are leading lacks hope or lacks a sense of we can do this? Well, it comes back to the mirror, actually, Pat, because for me, hope is not so much about what we're doing. It's about who we're being as a person, you know, um, and I, I distinguish hope over optimism. This goes back to um, Admiral Stockdale and Jim Collins and Good to Great brought this up. You know, Stockdale was uh, um, a, a prisoner of war, Vietnam prisoner of war, and he distinguished between hope and optimism and Hope, the difference between hope and optimism, optimism has got a, like a timeline to it, you know. Um, hope, though, does not have a timeline. Hope is about a belief in an after. And that is so much more powerful. And, you know, an up-to-date example moving forward from Apollo 13 is Elon Musk. Now, whatever we think of Elon Musk, 
he does maintain hope. Look at his space program. Look at his electric vehicle program. With SpaceX, you know, his first launch was in 2006. It exploded 30 seconds after liftoff. Same thing happened in 2007 with his second launch. Same thing again in 2008. His fourth launch, that worked, thankfully. But then on his birthday in 2015, his rocket exploded again when it was carrying a double payload for NASA up to the space station. And somebody said to him, um, Elon, you know, why, why do you, how do you keep on going? And he said, when something is important enough, it's worth doing anyway, even when the odds are not in your favor. So this to me is an example of commitment. He was absolutely committed, still is absolutely committed to forming his picture on the box, which is getting the human race on to Mars and the sustainable future for humankind. Uh, and he maintains that hope um, against the odds. And it's who he's being. It's how he occurs to people, a belief that there will be an after. In this case, they will be able to look back at some stage and say, yes, we got people on on the planet Mars. You know, it's like standing at the top of the mountain rather than standing at the bottom. You, you talk about this, this, uh, this belief, um, this, this, this core thing that you really do feel in your bones. And, and it, uh, it reminded me of, of these, um, these dual ideas that you present, uh, th this difference between acting with authenticity and acting with integrity. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, well, maybe I'll let, I'll let you explain the, the difference between the two and why it's important to act with integrity. Um, but maybe also how hope plays into that, because I, I, I imagine there being a little bit of tension there. Uh, if if yeah. there ever were doubt in your mind about uh, about the mission that you're pursuing. But but let, let, let's go back to uh, authenticity sure. and integrity. What, what's the difference between the two? Well, you know, when I was writing this book, <clears throat> Pat, uh, the term authenticity has always niggled me. Or, yeah, it, it, it always didn't seem quite right. It, it's talked about a lot in business and uh, in leadership circles, but something about it didn't quite feel right to me. And I think the nub of it for me was, uh, again, one of my experiences going back to 2003, leading during the the Iraq war. I, uh, as the, the senior person looking after my 200 or so people, you know, I had my doubts. I had my fears. I had my concerns. I had a whole bunch of unknowns that I was playing around with and challenges. And to be authentic would have been to, to share all that, what I felt with my team. But that wouldn't have helped them because it would have stoked their fears or doubts. Yes, this is not about um, ignoring the reality of the situation, not at all. It's about putting, as Seth Godin says, and Seth came to my help here, I've mentioned him in the book, because he talks about authenticity. We give up the the right to be authentic when we're about four or five years old. You know, uh, a four-year-old uh, kiddo screaming because he's hungry, that's authentic. But, you know, as we grow up, we need to put a filter on that. And when we're in a, um, 
a, a role where people are looking towards us for guidance, looking forward towards us for hope and belief, and to paint that picture on the box, then we need to put in a filter, and that's called integrity. You know, having integrity with what is expected of you in the role that you've chosen to take and take on. Part of that is hope. Part of that is supporting people so as they can figure out the challenges. Part of it is recognizing, you know, what you're faced with, but also being absolutely committed with every fiber of your body that you are going to reach the top of that mountain, whatever your mountain is that you're climbing. Um, because it's, then it creates a space where your people can walk alongside with you and help you figure out how you're going to get there. I really like that that parallel you draw to to a little kid um, yeah. because it reminds me of a conversation we have with our own daughter, <laughs> who's yeah. who's a, who's about to turn seven, uh, and we'll we'll tell her quite often uh, all feelings are okay. Yeah, there, there, there's no such thing as a bad feeling, but you have to learn how to choose your response to that feeling. Absolutely. Now that you're turning seven, it's it's less okay now to freak out about being hungry. It, it's okay to be hungry and to be upset about being hungry. Yeah. And and now that I, I I think about it, I think based on what you're saying, it, it makes sense. Leaders need to recognize in themselves those feelings and then choose their response. Yeah. It's not about not feeling what you do or not thinking what you do, but being particular about um, what you what you project to the outer world and and how. Yeah. And I I think there's some useful techniques that can come to play here. And we can go back to the aircraft uh, example. Uh, (laughs) I can tell you from experience that even when you're in a simulator, when you have an alarm that you've got an engine fire, your heart will skip a beat. Yeah. And what happens in a big aircraft, when you have an engine fire alert, there's a big red light that flashes and a very loud bell, very loud bell. There is no getting away from it. You've got an engine fire, you know? And this is where it links back to what we were talking about earlier, Pat. You know, our natural instinct will be for fear to kick in. And when fear kicks in, we either freeze, fight, or flight. Well, you know, I can't physically fight an engine fire. I can't... um, well, I can freeze, and that's what would happen to an untrained person, untrained pilot. Um, flight, I, I'm sure, you know, the passengers would get a little upset if you left the aircraft at that stage when they need you most. So um, our reaction would be one of those things, freeze, fight, or flight. But what is done in the aviation world is a lot of training where you learn what are called immediate actions to deal with something like an engine fire. And these are drills so as you know exactly what to do. And the benefit of that is it's a response that has been considered on the ground without a big red light in front of you or a loud bell going off by engineers and pilots who know the systems well and they figure out the procedure that you need to follow, Uh, all cool and calm and collected in a room. Then we train people to have that response triggered by the alarm and the, 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 the light, and to act as a reaction there, at the speed of a reaction. And what that does, it takes the place of the freeze, fight, or flight. It gives us something to do, which then, I mean, it's only a few seconds, but it's just enough for our brains to assimilate the situation we're now in 
and start to think clearly about what's next. And it's the same in business as well. You know, if we look at, um, well, engineering applications or um, let's say on the internet side, if we have a data breach, you know, these things are things that can be planned for where we can write down what our response is going to be and train it and practice it such that when and if it does happen, we can go into that mode and it gives us something to do when otherwise fear would take hold. So there's a difference between a reaction and a response. And there's a time and place for both. But often we react when we'd be better off responding. I really like this idea. And it reminds me of a, a conversation. I, I had uh, David Marquet yeah. uh, on, on the show uh, here a few episodes back, uh, episode 31. And uh, Marquet uh, was in charge of the USS Santa Fe. Uh, yeah. U.S. nuclear submarine, and uh, really, really cool story. Um, and in his most recent book, Leadership is Language, he he talks about the difference between blue work and red work, and how red work is doing the business. It's mm. it's heads down, it's hammer out whatever it is you do. Blue work is the is the pause and the stepping back and the thinking about the yeah. work. Um, and it occurs to me that coming up with responses to stimuli is that's blue work. That's not flying the plane. That's like you said, on the ground, yeah. uh, thinking through how are we going to deal with these things that uh, may well happen. They, they are, they are known risks. One of the things that I think is, is particularly difficult for leaders today uh, is to find the time for blue work yeah. is to find the time to choose those responses and think through with their team uh how are we going to deal with this if it comes up you're, you're too busy dealing with the stuff that has already come up <laughs> you're stuck in red work um you, you mentioned that that time is one of the most important things you can use to invest in your people and, and working on your team how do we come up with this time, Peter? What 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 does a leader have to do to do this this important work of investing in people and investing in uh, in that blue work in that coming up with with responses? Well, you know the, this when we when we think of time and applying time, we often have a distorted picture in our minds as to how much time we're talking about. And because uh, a lot of this is connected to who we're being, how we're occurring to others, how people perceive us, how we show up, um, it, it doesn't need to take very much time at all. Uh, again, going back to 2003 and the Iraq war, uh, one might assume I was very busy, and indeed I was. But I made time to brief my different shifts of aircraft maintainers, they're working 12 hours on, 12 hours off. I would brief them each and every day, even if I had nothing to tell them, um, because it was spending some time with them. I would um, I would just find time to sit down with uh, perhaps one of the most junior guys and check in that he or she was doing all right, you know, and how things were at home. It doesn't actually take that much time. And, and here's the thing, Pat, that I've learned, um, and I, I believe it's all linked. We, we all 
we all have some sort of desire to want to make a difference or be significant, you know. And this is linked to the time piece because we often think to be significant, we need to do something big, you know, we need to do the headline. But actually, that's not my experience at all. It's about the small stuff, you know. Uh, it's about being the pebble in the pond. You never know how far those ripples will go. And some of the most significant times for me, the other person involved probably doesn't remember them at all. You know, give you an example, and this is all about caring, finding time, creating those, those pivotal moments. When we came back from the Iraq war, uh, I was a little bit tired, to say the least. We've been out for several months. And uh, thank heavens, I brought back everybody who I took out with me. And when we landed back at our base, we we had the, the press and the family reunion, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, everybody had dispersed. And my wife had taken our car back. And I was in a, a, a little runaround we used at the, on the airfield. I had my two young children in the car with me at the time. I was about to drive off. And there was a knock on the window. It was this guy, John, who was one of my aircraft engineers, one of the aircraft maintainers. And... Uh, in one arm, he had his wife, and in his other arm, he had his newborn son, who he'd just met for the first time. And I wound down the window. I said, yes, John, what is it? And he said, sir, because I was his senior boss, he said, sir, I just want to say thanks for bringing us all home safe. Now, that was a significant moment for me. Mm. It took a couple of seconds of John's time. But that's something I will never forget because in that moment, it epitomized the sense of duty, the sense of service that John has in that he was away doing what he was, you know, employed to do whilst his wife was at home having their first child. And that will always stay with me. You know, and I think working the other way that I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I remember when you did or you said, and I don't remember it because it's a fleeting moment. But for them, it was just the right thing, at just the right time, maybe hand on the shoulder or just a, how are you doing? You know, um, and it's not difficult per se. What drives that, what enables us to do that is to really, truly care care at a human level. And any of us who are parents or any of us who've been kids, and I think we all have, we know when we're in the presence of someone who truly cares. It might not be that they have much time. It might not be that they do much, but we can sense it. And that can only be created when the person offering that care really does care so that's the answer to how do you find time it's mm. the fleeting moments and caring enough to search them out and well provide them for people that's right and, and if you are looking for those opportunities you, you will find them and you realize that it, it doesn't have to take four hours a day <laughs> to demonstrate okay. to your team that, yeah. that you you care yeah. An awful lot of magic can, can happen in those in those moments. Yeah. There's, there's one quick story on this, which I, I, I love, which is, um, you know, back in 1977, there were two space probes launched by NASA called Voyager. And uh, they have long since left our 
solar system and they're traveling at 40,000 miles an hour or, or something ridiculous. Now, um, <laughs> it's going to be another 40,000 years until they come anywhere close to another object. And even then, it's going to be 9 trillion miles away. I can't even com comprehend it. But the thing is, this tiny blue speck that is Earth and our sun, even though they are so small and so seemingly insignificant, have guided those two probes throughout their journey and will continue to guide those probes. And I think we have an opportunity as, as people who choose to lead in whatever context, as a parent, as a CEO, as a team leader, we have the opportunity to be that tiny blue speck where the little inputs that we make, the little moments that we create, continue to guide our people long after we've disappeared over the horizon. Yeah, it's quite, quite something. Quite something. Uh, Peter, I, I'm sure we could talk for another another several hours on this. The, the, <laughs> the topic is endlessly interesting to me, and, and the book is great. Uh, but I want to give uh, people an opportunity to, to dig into it uh, for themselves, sure. um, could, could you remind me when uh, when the book launches and where where people can go to uh, to pick it up? Yeah, so the book "Leading from the Jump Seats: How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control." Um, it's released on the nineteenth of October uh, in most parts of the world. In the the states, it's a few days later. Uh, it's available for pre-order worldwide through all the normal places, and we can put a, a link uh, on your show notes. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to share it with people because I, I think there are a few things in there that are going to help. Absolutely. And, and uh, no problem at all. The, the links will definitely show up in the show notes. Uh, Mr. Peter Docker, thank you once again. This has been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thanks, Pat. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Me too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Peter. I really, really appreciate your insights, your ideas, uh, some really fantastic stuff, all all drawn from some incredible personal experience, professional experience, and, and really distilled down into the, a, a fantastic book. I can't can't recommend this highly enough. As I was listening back on our conversation, one of the things that I thought was important to take away from this was that at some point we all move on from our leadership roles. We we either retire, we take promotions. Or on a more personal note, we, we have kids who, who eventually move out. Um, so at some point, you, you've got to take that back seat. You've got to climb into the jump seat. And jump seat leadership is all about empowering others so that they can take over when the time comes. And it's important for us to recognize that that time will come. Whether we prepare for it or not is a different question altogether. It's incredibly important to prepare for that. But so many of us don't, don't think to, or even if we do, we don't really know how. So this book really provides some, some fantastic guidance to that end. Another big idea is that fear is what makes us want to step in and not allow someone else to take the reins. When you see some sort of problem, when you see some sort of situation where you know you know what to do about it, and you, you're worried that the people that you have previously empowered or been building up aren't able to. It, it's that fear 
that is speaking to you and saying, well, you, you better jump in or this be a disaster. The problem is if, if you allow fear to dictate your actions, the people you are trying to build up will never get there. You have to be willing to let go. In fact, you even have to be willing to let little bad things happen. Now, certainly a lot of the examples that that Peter talked about during the interview and, and in his book relate to not little bad things happening. They talk to, they speak to really big bad things happening, like airliners going down. And I really like that he examined the the ideas he presented in those extreme contexts uh, because it really paints a clear picture. But I think it's important to note that you don't need to be in a life or death situation to practice these ideas. In fact, most leadership situations don't involve airline passengers going down, frankly. So it should be even easier for most of us to let go. I think that's really, really important. Off the top of the show, I mentioned that I had a a special opportunity to share, and I'm really excited about this. If you liked the interview, if you're interested in Peter Docker and his work, uh, and in his new book, uh, Peter has very graciously offered to send out a signed copy to one of you, someone listening to this show right now. It's very, very easy to sign up. Uh, just go to engineeringandleadership.com slash jump seat contest. That's engineeringandleadership.com slash jump seat contest, and you will be entered to win uh, one free signed copy of Peter's book, Leading for the Jump Seat. So again, if you're interested in getting a copy, engineeringandleadership.com slash jump seat contest. Uh, like I said, free to join, free to enter. I'll be picking a winner very, very soon. Like Peter said, the book comes out very soon. So I want to make sure that uh, we pick a winner quickly and get that book out to you. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So thank you once again, Peter, for the chat and the uh, the signed book. This is going to be a lot of fun. Next up, of course, we have the engineering and leadership mailbag. You know how this works. This is the part of the show where I read your messages and answer your questions. I promise to read everything you send me, and I promise to read my favorites right here on the podcast. I got a few messages from folks who subscribe uh, to the Engineering and Leadership Weekly newsletter, people who are part of this uh, engineering and leadership community. Uh, Nisarg from India reached out to share his work in promoting engineering work for various schools and institutes in India. Uh, So thank you very much for reaching out. Great to hear from you. And Terrence also wrote to share a bit about his work in renewable energy and underwater equipment. Uh, Both Terrence and Nisarg were were just writing to say hi and and share a little bit about themselves. And uh, that's awesome. I love hearing from people. You don't need to have some pressing leadership issue to reach out. I'm always here and always love chatting with folks. Uh, Finally, we had David Crivelli, who wrote on LinkedIn, and he said, really enjoyed this episode, and this got me interested in becoming a mentor. And and he's referring there to uh, the episode with uh, Anand Safi, the previous episode, number 38. You can check that out in the archives. David goes on to say, the examples that Anand Safi showed seem mostly geared towards software to me, whereas I'm interested in the mechanical slash aerospace and similar areas. Did you come across anything similar? All the platforms linked seem to consider engineering as software only. 
Well, thank you very much, David, for for your note. I, I'm really glad you enjoyed the episode, and Anand uh, had a, a lot of really interesting stuff to say on uh, mentorship and coaching and the importance both for the person giving and the person receiving the mentoring or the coaching. It really does go both ways. Uh, but I think David has a point. See, Anand's background certainly is in software, so a lot of the experience that he had to share related to his own experience. That's not a knock on uh, Anand at all. That's he's speaking from what he knows, which makes sense. A lot of the the uh, tools and platforms that exist right now, at least those that I'm aware of, uh, really do seem to cater predominantly to folks in software. That's true. So I guess uh, I would say, David, you're, you're not making it up. There is, I think, a bit of a gap in the market uh, as far as that goes. Engineering, uh, uh, as we all know, is much, much, much broader than software. Um, so I, I guess I would put it out to the community. If anyone in the community knows about a, a platform or anything that really does cater to, to matching uh, non-software engineers to coaches and mentors, uh, I'd love to hear about it. And if uh, if you want to write me on LinkedIn, that would be great. And I would promise to share any resources I get in the next episode. Uh, but if nothing comes back, that, that might be a, an interesting opportunity for us here at the Engineering and Leadership Headquarters here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, to, uh, to come up with something and fill that gap. So uh, again, David, thank you very much for your comment. Really do appreciate it. And thank you again, Anand, for, uh, for all your advice last episode. Thanks once again to all those who reached out. If you'd like to chat with me or leave a comment, please do find me on LinkedIn or leave a comment in the episode show notes. You just go to engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 39. That's all the time we have for the show today. I will be back soon with our next episode. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you would subscribe so that uh, we can continue this conversation. It's been a lot of fun so far. Um, and uh, if, uh, if you wouldn't mind, leaving a review would be super helpful for me. It helps me understand what's going well, what's not going well, and helps others find the show as well. For more information and links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, again, just go to the show notes engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 39. Until next time, this is Pat Sweet reminding you that if you're going to be anything, be excellent. You've been listening to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet. If you'd like to learn more, go to engineeringandleadership.com where you'll find more free articles, podcasts, and downloads to help engineers thrive. That's engineeringandleadership.com. Engineering and Leadership.